Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you to our music team, Kelly and Shannon and Lincoln. Um, that's just pretty. That's just pretty. I'm sorry I have to co- go to this passage now and get a little mean. All right. Today would have been a good day to skip church. Um, no, I don't mean that. I don't mean that. Everything that the Lord has for us is for our benefit and for our love for one another. It's incredible how the the study of the Bible just increasingly yields fruit over time. You probably recall that last week I underscored the physical nature of our bodily resurrection in the future and the kingdom of Christ, the new heavens and earth. When Christ returns, there will be a recreation. In Matthew 19 and verse 28, Jesus calls this moment of recreation, the regeneration. When the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne in a time when everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. What Jesus is saying there, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be completely worth it. And Scripture assures our resurrection, it'll be a physical experience uh, when there comes a new kingdom, and Christ will reign on earth. And uh, I rang that bell quite loudly last week, and uh, because you might be surprised to learn, a lot of people who identify as Christians do not believe in that future physical kingdom. Uh, some entirely spiritualize the, the kingdom reign of Christ. Admittedly, there is a spiritual kingdom over which Christ presently reigns. In fact, numerous professors at Dallas Seminary, uh, including the renowned, if, you know, if you've heard of him, Daryl Bach, a pretty renowned theologian there, uh, they suggest that Christ is already ruling uh, over his church from his throne. Uh, there, exists, there exists a spiritual reign. There's no question about that. Uh, Colossians 1 and verse 13 does in fact say, and this is in the errorist tense, that simply means uh, something that was completed already in the past. It says, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Whether you describe the place from which Christ reigns now as the right hand of God or as Bach does, the Davidic throne, uh, there are passages that support both. Uh, So there exists a spiritual kingdom now. But Scripture also assures there is still yet to come a very physical kingdom on earth when Christ returns. And last Sunday... I urge that we revere the Word of God, that we receive it 
by acknowledging that God has the power to resurrect the dead and to recreate the physical realm. You know, many will insist, insist you know, I, I just can't buy it. I just don't think God could do that. And on Monday, the next morning, then, uh, my daily devotional was from Matthew 22 and verse 23, uh, where some religious leaders called the Sadducees, we are told, who say there is no resurrection, they came to Jesus and questioned him. Sadducees, they fancied themselves as, as highly educated Uh, They adhered rigidly to the ceremonial law, so they really had an appearance of being very religious, but they did not believe that God could raise the dead. Well, that's why they were, I'm sorry if if you've been around a while, but I've got to say it if you're new, that's why they were sad, you see. Someone here had never heard that before. We've heard it a thousand times. Um... That's how you distinguish the Sadducees from the Pharisees, as the Sadducees did not believe that God could raise the dead. And they tested Jesus with a story about a woman who had been married seven times. And they're asking, well, whose wife will she be in the resurrection then? And knowing the Sadducees were skeptics who deny a bodily resurrection Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Boy. Folks, those who do not accept a resurrection, uh, recreation, they, they don't believe God has the power to do it, and uh, therefore they must not believe that Christ has been raised. Well, folks, that's critical. That is critical. And as such, they do not understand the Scriptures. Well, it appears that the Apostle Paul got through in Thessalonica. His message on the resurrection, given multiple times, reassuring them both verbally when he is with them and in writing as he was parted from them, Uh, He reassured them again and again that Christ is going to come suddenly like a thief and the dead in Christ will rise first. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16. We also know from 1 Corinthians 15, this means that men will be raised like Christ in the fact that they will have an imperishable body. And then Paul says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And in our passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, it's speculated that, uh, you know, some had quit working because they believed what was described in chapter 2, uh, early in chapter 2, that they had missed the day of the Lord. That's one, one hypothesis out there. Um, I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it at all. Uh, I could be wrong. But my suspicion is that due to 1 Thessalonians' repeated focus on the coming of Christ, remember the parousia, 
The coming of Christ we spoke about again and again. Some were convinced that Christ's return was going to happen quickly. It's going to be real soon. And uh, that prompted, in my speculation, a lapse of motivation to work. Jesus is coming. I probably just won't get up to work today. And eventually they started mooching, at least some of them started mooching off others. Uh, Folks, is this lesson crucial for today? Not working and mooching off others. Christians don't just stop working. I'll begin reading from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. What is the tradition? Paul says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. The word of the Lord. Well, regardless of what prompted their lapse in motivation, the command and the scriptural lesson is crystal clear. We work hard to remain self-sufficient. We provide for ourselves and we eat our own bread. Christians don't convert to a communal lifestyle, and share resources equally. And we'll discover there are very good reasons why Christians are capitalists and believe that the harder you work and the higher that you achieve, the more you will earn. Because we know that Scripture, through Scripture... We recognize that forms of government that seize, that take control, and redistribute resources equally to creatures of sloth, or those who refuse to work, they are not merely unbiblical, they are morally evil. We have a lot of these evil and immoral people in our government who have injected 
socialist ideas and ethics into an entitlement system. Make no mistake about it, socialism, Marxism, and communism are sinful and immoral, and they are socially detrimental forms of government. We know that Jesus taught that paying your taxes is biblical. It's merited. In fact, it's mandatory. But socialism and communism go far beyond taxation to build bridges and roads. How do you recognize them? How do you spot them? Well, this is how. They justify confiscating wealth and resources using a sinister and fraudulent appeal that they're making everybody economically equal. That's their line. We're going to confiscate and redistribute and make everybody equal. Folks, making everybody equal is a ruse. Our passage exposes it as a hoax. Socialism has been repeatedly tried throughout history, but never has and never will help anyone to prosper, except those who are in control. And what it has always proven to achieve is making the working class equally poor and destitute. That's a fact. You'll notice that the politicians who defend socialist principles are are usually driven between their vacation homes by a chauffeur. They have a private security force or motorcade uh, much of the time. They enjoy their commute in bulletproof escalades while insisting we are all becoming equal. Folks, these politicians are liars. They are liars. What Marxism, socialism, and communism have done in countries like Russia and Venezuela is make a very small number of politically powerful people. They refer to them as oligarchs. They've made them very rich and the working class very poor. And since the working class, well, they share poverty equally, all motivation to work hard, produce, and prosper is lost. You'll probably say that, well, many of the rich capitalists, they, they live pretty glamorously as well. That is true. That is true. But they aren't the ones claiming to make all of us equal. And in capitalism, people most often, most often become rich through creating businesses and jobs that both allow and stimulate the working class to work hard and prosper. Personal property rights and private ownership is the scriptural model. Not where the government owns everything and a few elite decide how it's going to be distributed. 
And socialism in its various forms, and there are many, uh, folks, it is morally reprehensible. This biblical absolute, it's one reason the church is persecuted in socialist countries. Socialist politicians feel threatened by Christianity and capitalism. Because it means that, that these who want to be dictators would have to earn their own way. And folks, fewer, not, I wouldn't say zero, but fewer in government these days are even qualified to work an honest job at Wendy's. Much less ascend to CEO of a Fortune 500 company. They don't have what it takes. And the majority of them know they can't do it. And then looking at the faces of our most powerful political leaders of our day, uh, corporations striving to turn a profit would never hire them. Therefore, most politicians can only become wealthy through remaining in power. That's their goal. They will do anything to keep it, to keep the power. They'll pay for your abortion if you vote for them. They will recognize your preferred gender if you vote for them. They have a program to install solar panels on your house if you vote for them. They'll promise you health care, food stamps, baby formula, subsidies, whatever you desire. You can even stay home indefinitely and we'll send you federal payments to do that. Whatever it takes to get your vote. This is because most do not have the talent nor the motivation to become wealthy in a free market capitalist system through ingenuity and hard work. They don't have it. They realize they don't have it. And socialists would rather bankrupt our country through buying your votes than lose their position of power. That's a fact. And the younger generation is going to pay for it. They generally, well, I'd say nicely, they dislike Christians... Because we know that the scriptural function of government is to punish evil and reward good. That's from Romans chapter 13. Uh, they are to secure uh, our interests, have a military, defend borders, defend our interests. Uh, and when, when it remains within the scriptural parameters of government, the role of government, Romans 13 assures us that it is a minister of God for good. Punish evil, reward good, keep the peace. Government is a minister of God for good. But when a government turns its focus to social engineering, redefining marriage, propagating sloth, rewarding evil, and punishing good, at some point, it has ceased to serve as a minister of God. Well, I imagine a number of you are thinking, 
Boy, there's no hope. This is horrible. Our country is slipping into socialism. They're brainwashing our children. How are we possibly going to survive? Well, here's the reassuring part. The church has learned over two millennia the type of government we exist under does not have to practice our biblical values for the church to survive and thrive. It is Christians who need to practice our biblical values to survive and thrive. The church has adapted to flourish under every corrupt type of government, every type of governmental system, as long as we ourselves do not adopt the values of that system. Folks, this is the test that we face. You see it all around us. We're saturated with this. It's demoralizing. But here's the test we face in obedience to Scripture. When your neighbor is sucking the system dry, how are you going to respond? Are you going to continue to wake up early and work hard every day regardless of whether your neighbor sits at home on the couch? Will we remain faithful to God's economic system or are we just going to hold our, fold our hands and embrace a secular system? It's a moral question. Do we believe what the Bible says? Because the secular system steals. It steals. It takes money from one hardworking American in the disguise of taxes and redistributes it to others who are just lazy gluttons. Our system, this, is, this will really get you. Our system, and you know this. Everyone knows this. Our system robs money from one generation, a future generation, yet to come in the form of ballooning debt, and then applies it and spends it in this generation, we who are never satisfied that we've acquired enough. Because we want more. We want more stability. We want more comfort. We don't want to have to sacrifice anything We're putting our children and the next generation in the drink. At this same time, there are few things more detrimental to morality and the human psyche than financially subsidizing otherwise perfectly healthy individuals to perpetually sit at home. Folks, that is incredibly harmful to people. Incredibly harmful uh, to their psyche, to their future. And notice that verse 10, it's applied strictly to people who are unwilling to work. Don't miss that. This scriptural reprimand does not apply to the helpless widow, the orphan, 
the physically or mentally handicapped, those disabled, or others earnestly seeking employment, it it doesn't apply to those who for one reason or another have become unable to work. See the difference? This is for those who are unwilling to care for themselves and to get up each day. Um, Verse 10 says, there Paul declares, even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. We might initially think, well, that is, this language is just so harsh and it's so unfair. No, it is not. It is not. Verse 10 describes excelling in love. In fact, you heard during our scripture reading from 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4 that Paul began by saying, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need to write uh, anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And then how do you excel, excel in love? He says, by making it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders. Properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. This doesn't only apply to within the church. Describes an attitude of working hard as a display of love for the brethren. Well, why? Because working hard prevents you and your family from becoming a needless burden to other Christians. And according to that scripture reading, it's also behaving properly toward outsiders who are non-Christians by not being in any need. Our work ethic is a testimony to the Lord and a witness to the unbelieving population that surrounds us. Christians work. An otherwise healthy Christian will not sit idly and indefinitely on welfare and and steal from our system. That is not loving your neighbor as yourself. That is not Christianity. We don't conjure up schemes to scam the system, uh, to buy us things that we don't need and would never buy using our own money. Think about that the next time that the taxpayer is offered a rebate on something that you don't need. Ask yourself, would you buy it with your own money? Well, then buy it with your own money. Stop burying our children in federal debt. 
when it comes to things which you have, which you have made for yourself, when you've ran up the debt, when it's been your choice to borrow the money, you pay off your student loan. Stop behaving like the godless pagans who surround us. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, work with your hands so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. It's additionally important to not become a preventable burden to your Christian brethren. Why does this matter? Uh, Because, well, your Christian brethren have more important things to do with their money than to take care of people who are lazy. Well, what other things could be more important than taking care of me, you might ask? Well, things like taking care of the widow who actually is sick and needs us. Or using church resources to care for Christians in part of the world suffering disease and famine who need us. Or supporting missionaries who preach the gospel in foreign nations who need us. For a similar reason, I don't think pastors should be excessively compensated. The money is to be used on things that are more important. How much compensation for a pastor indicates excessive? Well, I don't think we've reached it yet. (laughs) I don't know, because Paul does here go to compensation, him working. Um, I don't know if we ever decide to hire an associate pastor again. Uh, If we do, we're going to have to offer him a standard of living where he can buy a house in Port St. Lucie and have some hope to raise a family. Like you desire for your own self, and I do for my own self, uh, you wouldn't want a pastor or an associate pastor to live day-to-day discouraged. Scripture says the plowman ought to plow in hope. If we continue to expect that a full-time pastor uh, that comes on staff uh, have a master's degree, uh, if we expect him to be experienced, uh, he should probably be compensated in line with other occupations that require a master's degree. Any schooling that we expect is a prerequisite, it costs money. And the scriptural expectation is strongly and firmly established in 1 Corinthians 9. There Paul states very clearly, the Lord, that means the Lord Jesus, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Therefore, when Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 7, that we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day 
so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And he says, not because we do not have the right to do this as ministers of the gospel, as apostles, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. Paul is not here proposing what he has done in Thessalonica is a new scriptural model for minister compensation. He has actually offered himself as an exception to that. He's saying we had the right, but we did not use that right. When Paul founded the church in Thessalonica, he and Silas were probably there a very short time. Uh, Probably as little as just a few weeks before being rushed out of town by the cover of darkness. Remember Acts chapter 17? Persecution caused them to have to leave Thessalonica quickly. They weren't in Thessalonica very long. That was a brand new chart church that they started in Thessalonica. And it is reasonable for a new church planter to do what is called tent making. That that means they work a side job until the church has had time to become stable, financially stable, uh, to the point it can obey then the scriptural expectation established by Christ himself. Pay the pastors. Paul discerned that something about that culture in Thessalonica needed to see him as a role model, a a hard-working example for them. Something, Something was going on there. If some of them actually were lazy gluttons, Paul may have feared their expectation that Christ may return quickly could exasperate their poor work ethic. In fact, it appears that it had. By comparison, Corinth, which is a city from which Paul is writing this letter, they were wealthy. They had the money to pay, but Paul said, I'm not going to take financial support from you either. Because you are carnal, and you would conclude that peddling the word of God, 2 Corinthians 2.17, is a good way to make some cash. Paul said, I'm not going to accept anything from you either. Folks, the gospel is never to become a means of making money. No one should ever enter Christian ministry hoping to become successful and wealthy in the eyes of the world. If your heart is driven to build wealth, God has not called you to pastor a church. Instead, many pastors and missionaries take a pay cut when transitioning into ministry. That is true. If you feel you may be called into occupational ministry, realize it is often a method of preparation by God to test your heart. What is your motivation? Why are you going to do this? 
We don't get to talk about it much, but the passage is here. Paul shows, I'm not motivated by money. I've heard from many different pastors at pastors' conferences the situations they went through. I'll be honest. I still, this is just being honest. We're on the topic. I don't like talking about myself and history and other things much. I still earn considerably less today than I did working for Delta Airlines back in 2004. And that is perfectly fine. So does my wife. It doesn't bother us a bit. We are very appreciative to God for keeping our life comfortable and for the generosity of the people of this church. I don't think any of us here wants to be impoverished, right? But ministry must never become about well, uh, becoming wealthy, folks. The Christian life is not about becoming wealthy. We can't take this property with us. This is one reason the early church in Jerusalem treated things not as their own. And moved by the Holy Spirit, as was discussed earlier about the day of Pentecost and how God's Spirit worked powerfully in the days following Pentecost. They gave freely to those who were in need. The book of Acts doesn't suggest or say that they abandoned their, uh, their private property rights. Instead, the story of Ananias and Sapphira proves the opposite. But the early church shared their excess wealth with the impoverished, those who really needed it, not counting it as if it belonged to themselves because they believed that their property belongs to Christ. They were generous. They believed they were building a future kingdom of Christ, not a kingdom of their own now. And they believed that everyone who has left houses or family or farms, that means businesses, for my name's sake, if you're being called to ministry, will receive many times as much in eternal life. Jesus is saying, the kingdom has not come yet, but it's going to be worth it. Everything that we do in the name of Christ, in the ministry of the gospel together, layman or occupational ministry Boy, we're going to be glad we did it. The kingdom is still to come. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Folks, that section is pointing towards the return of Christ and his future kingdom established on earth. When he returns, that's when things on earth will be done. The same. You don't think this is heaven yet, right? Just wanted to get that clear. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A few weeks ago, in adult Bible class, Mike Clements taught a parable. 
about making friends for yourself using your wealth in this world, he described it as unrighteous mammon. I don't know where he got that. Dirty money. Money of this world. The money we make in this world, because we're in an unrighteous realm, Jesus referred to as money of unrighteousness. This is where we get it in this system today. Um, And Mike said, make friends for yourself, for the gospel, so that when Christ returns and the treasure of this world fails, and it will, that those friends who you made in Christ, that they will receive you into their eternal dwellings, and say, come on over. I want to talk about how you shared the gospel with me. Make friends with the money of unrighteousness. And that parable foresees our life as it will be in the future kingdom of Christ. As I noted last week, um, after we finish 2 Thessalonians, our sermon series will transition toward Building the future kingdom of Christ. You say, that's great. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Folks, it is going to shake some of us up. Because among us are those who, well, like me, like preserving our comforts in this current age. So it's possible. We're not initially so excited about building a kingdom, a kingdom to come and for God's will to be done. And we'll look look at what the early church did. We're going to begin this summer on July 3rd in the Old Testament book of Haggai. The series will be titled, It's Time to Build. Haggai has the potential to make us agitated. If you've never read Haggai before, just be glad that I didn't choose Joel. Boy, that guy is tough. As I was trying to choose a summer book, I was just listening audibly through the the minor prophets. That just means the prophets who wrote shorter, shorter books. Boy, they're tough. What did the early church do? It's easier to talk about building than sacrificing what we have today to do it. Fortunately, we know that all the resources that we have belong to Christ. And what we are building today is not for ourselves. I was asked last weekend... This just popped in my head because it's recent again. About this church property. And I was just asked politely, who does it belong to? Who owns it? That's a fair question because I've kind of wondered that myself in some places I've visited. Um, This property belongs to Jesus Christ. It's held uh, as being incorporated. It has a board. And it is held in common to be used by us together for Christ's kingdom. No part of this property belongs to me or any other individual. It's not Pastor John's church. It's Christ's church. 
If the Lord tarries, this work will continue long after I'm gone. And I want you to have complete confidence when you give to this church and support our missionaries because I know you work hard. And it's tough to sacrifice what we have in this world when there's any question of whether or not it's bearing any fruit in the next. But I want you to have confidence when you give to this church and support our missionaries, our ministries, our poverty relief, maintaining this property that we share together on the, on the corner of Savona and Parr. The only legacy that's being built at Port St. Lucie Bible Church belongs to Jesus Christ. And we need to be busy about building His kingdom. Our new series that will start in the fall, following Haggai, is going to begin around Labor Day. And we are going to study through the Acts of the Apostles. Start in verse 1 and take off from there. Very timely today, Ken. You think the Holy Spirit might have had something going on there? I think so. We're going to look at the power of the Holy Spirit and the apostles who went into the world to preach Christ and what result there was from it. Folks, I'm looking forward to that. We expect too little from God. We expect too few wonderful things to happen at the preaching of the gospel. We need to be reassured that the Holy Spirit and the gospel are powerful. Jesus said, stay here, and not many days from now, you will receive power. That same Holy Spirit is with us today every time we witness to someone, every time we share the gospel, every time we preach Christ, the Holy Spirit is there to act. As I wrap up our passage, the thrust of verse 6, well, there we find a very firm command. It's at the beginning of this passage. The term is a military command. It is combined with the solemn phrase, you see it, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice this first command is direct, directed at those who are be, behaving rightly. Not the ones who are refusing to work. And to disobey this command is to disobey Christ himself. He says, keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. As we've learned earlier, that tradition is to work hard. And if a man is unwilling to work, neither shall he eat. That seems bad enough. But we're also told he is to be shunned by the entire congregation. To keep away means to avoid him entirely. Invo avoid that person. Wow. Why? Out of love for him and for others. Refusing to work is self-destructive. 
the self-destructive lifestyle that must never be modeled or accepted within the church. If you refuse to work, again, not unable, those who are unwilling, physically capable but unwilling, if you refuse to work, not only do you have zero resources with which to be generous and ready to share, you haven't worked, so you've got nothing to give to anybody in need. That's immoral. It also leads to depression, anxiety, psychological harm. It leaves way too much time in your day to get in trouble. Wow. Is that not the truth? Life becomes unruly and undisciplined because you didn't wake up early and go to work hard to tire yourself out. You begin to end up becoming creative and finding ways to fill your time with sinful gratification. That's not good for anyone. You wander around to your neighbor's house while he's out working. You begin to imagine taking what belongs to him. You wander around the internet all day. That that can't be good for anybody. So to shun such a person and to keep away from them is actually a display of love. It's saying you better come back to us because there's nothing good that comes out of an empty schedule and sitting around the house all day. If you truly have concern about your Christian brother, the church is going to insist that he get up and work every day like everybody else. Every month that you sit idle is lost earning potential that you will never be able to recoup. Time expires, folks. It's what in the industry, probably in the food industry, it's described as a perishable asset. You can't deposit it at this time and withdraw it from the bank again later. It's gone. The opportunity is gone. And you'll never recover that earning potential that will be lost forever. Paul stayed busy. But nobody was busier about God's work than our Lord Jesus Christ. He worked for the kingdom Every day. He said the harvest is plentiful. But those workers, kind of hard to find. That's my adaptation. The laborers are few. And while his disciples were distracted finding lunch somewhere, Christ, though physically wearied, we are told in the passage of John 4, He's wearied to the point of exhaustion. He had a long journey and he made himself available for a conversation with a woman at a well. Have you ever been so tired that you just didn't feel like witnessing at all? Go away, I've had a long day. Jesus understands. But a few minutes of his time and a single conversation bring the whole town to meet Christ. 
And as I bring, or I ask, or invite the men to come forward to distribute the Lord's Supper, I'm going to admit there, were, there have been times that I don't feel like doing much of anything. There have been seasons where I haven't accomplished near as much as I should have. Sometimes I want to cry when life gets so overwhelming and hard. But I don't cry. That, that would be unmanly. No. Sometimes I cry. But there's coming a day when we won't be able to work anymore. And um, that day will be the day of the Lord. And uh, we won't be able to build any longer, folks. We won't have the chance anymore because Christ's kingdom will have come. And everything that we have invested in today, the wood, hay, and straw is going to be burned up. But everything that we have invested for the kingdom of tomorrow, like gold, silver, and precious stones, is going to survive. And each man's work will become evident, for that day will show it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. May each of us work diligently for him. And though we all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to our own way, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him.